You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. In the opening scenes of Lewis Carroll's fanciful children's story, Alice in Wonderland, Alice follows the white rabbit down the proverbial rabbit hole and begins to fall. And fall. And fall. She passes all sorts of amazing things, but barely has time to absorb them as she continues to fall. She begins to wonder if the passage will take her clear through the earth and out the other side. Finally, she finds herself in a passageway from which one of the doors leads to a beautiful, small garden. But it's so small she can't fit through the door. Well, she can't until she bravely drinks the potion labeled Drink Me, and shrinks to a much smaller size, just the right size to fit through the door and into the restful, beautiful garden. Those of you who know the story will recall that she does not, in fact, end up enjoying a restful afternoon in that garden, but instead her experiences only become more fantastical. In our chaotic and disordered world, we may find appeal in escaping into a small, contained space, a safe space, a space of predictable cause and effect, a space in which we can nurture our illusion of being in control of our lives. Now, I'm all for going on retreat. You could say in my little oasis on the farm, I've withdrawn to just such a space. But when we cramp our faith into a small, safe place of certainty, a place with right answers and rewards for faithfulness, we may find ourselves in more trouble than poor Alice. In some ways, Judaism in the time of Jesus had retreated into a contracted, walled, and safe space. It was a predictable space. The rituals of the temple service followed their time-honored rhythm. God blessed those who followed the law, it was thought, often with both health and material blessings. The crowd at the synagogue was predictable, too. The same men, faithful and observant Jews, meeting for the prayers and the reading of Torah. There were no outsiders, no misfits, no sinners, no Gentiles, or even Samaritans. It was exclusive. It was safe. It was defined, like Alice's small walled garden. You could understand that and cut them some slack. The law, as delivered in Leviticus, that's the Old Testament book that prescribes the rituals of worship, is very tightly demarcated. Everything neat and tidy, everything defined and predictable. But of course, that wasn't the whole story that had been given to the Hebrew people. They may have retreated into the security of a defined and neatly bordered faith, but their founding story is not with Moses the lawgiver. It's with Abraham, the patriarch. Abraham, who, when invited to consider God's promise to him, was not prompted to look into a small walled garden. No, he was told to go out and look at the sky on a cloudless night and see the vast, unbounded expanse of heaven, to consider the number of the stars, a number that even now is still beyond definition. He was told that his heritage would outlast time and his offspring would outnumber the stars. The covenant with Abraham was not bounded by time, nor was it bounded by tribe. Abraham was told that through him and his descendants, 
all of the families of the earth would be blessed. It's an expansive vision based on a covenant relationship and aimed toward blessing. But by the time of Jesus, it seemed that the faithful Jews had become short-sighted. They were no longer looking to the expanse of the stars. They were looking to the temple walls, designed to enforce piety and exclude those who failed to meet the mark. A number of years ago, when I was working at Sunnybrook, an expensive new condominium building was being constructed on Bayview, just north of the hospital. The hoarding around the site featured glamorous images of the lobby and model suite, and boasted that they would be the most exclusive condos in Toronto. Most exclusive, most exclusionary, most excluding. That was the sales pitch. It really struck me. They were bragging about the fact that the general public would be excluded and only the creme de la creme would get in. Okay, I can get there are sometimes a few people we may want to exclude, like grumpy Uncle Hector and his off-colored stories that would dampen your family celebration, sort of trimming off a few people at the margins. But to define yourself by your ability to exclude almost everyone else, that's a whole other game. And sadly, it seems that's what first-century Judaism had descended to. It was all about excluding the unclean, the outsiders, the misfits, the goyim, and honoring those who kept all the rules. It was in this context that Luke records his biography of Jesus. Each of the four biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament is unique. John's was the last written, and with the benefit of time, it offers the most mature perspective, taking a theological rather than a chronological approach. Mark's was written first, and it has the sense of it being dashed off in a hurry to get the good news out. It's short, and the narrative rushes from scene to scene with many paragraphs beginning, and immediately... Matthew's record was aimed at a Jewish audience and contains nearly 100 quotes from and allusions to the Hebrew scriptures. It reinforces the continuity of the story of Jesus with God's covenant relationship with the descendants of Abraham. And then there's Luke's account. The structure and many of the incidents, miracles, and teachings parallel Mark and Matthew. But it definitely has its own flavor. While Luke does take pains to show the ministry of Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, his approach is more broadly accessible, perhaps aimed at an audience that included Gentiles. More than any of the other biographies, Luke's focuses on the outsider. He's the only biographer to report that women were part of the band that traveled with Jesus. And in fact, they were affluent women, affluent women who financed the ministry. That emphasis on women begins in Luke's very first chapter, where Mary and Elizabeth dominate the dialogue. And in fact, the only important man in the chapter, Zechariah, is struck mute. And the scandal wasn't just that women were being included. Luke records stories of epic dinner parties that Jesus attended. The food may have been fine, but the problem was the unsavory dinner companions, tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. In the face of Jewish practice that, like the condos on Bayview, was highly exclusive, 
Jesus' dinner parties were revolutionary. They blew open the doors and turned the established order upside down. And Luke continues that sense of upside-downness, of breaking common expectations in another of his major themes, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, as Luke describes it, was not an exclusive place for the religious elite, nor was it the re-establishment of Jewish rule from Jerusalem, nor was it a future state to be attained after death. It was much more like Abraham's starry sky than the Pharisees' walled temple. It was inclusive, and it was radical in its ethic of love. And instead of hiding in a gated enclave, it was a kingdom that was active in the world and transforming the world. Finally, Luke emphasizes salvation. And in this, too, he draws us to a much bigger vision than we might have had. The Pharisees emphasized that those on the inside could retain their status by faithful observance and personal piety. As an educated Greek, Luke would have been familiar with Plato's writings, writings that were hugely influential at that time, and emphasized that the material world was unimportant and inferior to the world accessed by the mind. In contrast to these prevailing views, Luke describes a salvation that is comprehensive. Body, soul, and spirit are all important and all addressed. In fact, as Luke records that Jesus sometimes seems to use salvation and physical healing interchangeably. In that story where the guys lower their disabled friend down through the roof of the house where Jesus is teaching, Jesus' first words to him are salvation. Your sins are forgiven. When the Pharisees get a bit shirty about that, Jesus says, okay, and tells the disabled man to get up and walk. When the rich young ruler asks about the path to salvation and asks what laws he has to keep, Jesus directs him to address one of the systemic issues that lead to the scourge of poverty. And later on, Paul further develops our understanding of the scope of salvation when he talks about all of creation groaning with eager anticipation of redemption. Salvation, not just for souls, but for whole people. And not just for individuals, but for communities and the systems they are part of. And not just for society, but for the planet we live on. For Luke, salvation isn't the closed, exclusive community of the temple. It's a radically inclusive kingdom of outcasts and outsiders. And it isn't just a ticket to heaven, but a comprehensive restoration of body, soul, spirit, and community. You may find yourself wondering, where is Jan headed with all this? Or perhaps better, where is she coming from? We haven't even heard the text for the day. Well, actually we have. That is, if your summer, summer travels didn't have you out of town two weeks ago... These, were reflections, were, these reflections were prompted by continuing to look at that same passage Aaron spoke, spoke from that day, the healing of ten people with leprosy. You'll recall the story. Jesus is on his final journey to Jerusalem, going from Galilee to Samaria, and as he travels along the road, a group of people afflicted with leprosy cry out to him for mercy. He tells them to go show themselves to the priest, and as they walk away following this instruction, they find that they are healed. One comes back praising God and falls at Jesus' feet, 
thanking him and worshiping him. Jesus comments that the only one who came back to say thank you was actually a Samaritan and that his faith had saved him. It's a familiar story for those of us who grew up in church because it was regularly used in Sunday school as a teaching about the importance of saying thank you. But for me, that take is way too small. For me, the story encapsulates Luke's view of salvation and contrasts it to the Jewish practice of the time. The nine leprosy patients who didn't come back to give thanks were presumably Jewish, and they operated very much within that framework. The Old Testament book of Leviticus gives detailed instructions on the management of skin diseases such as leprosy. Some chapters read a bit like a diagnostic manual describing the nature of the rash and its progression. It also specifies the the inspection that the priest must make when someone claims to be cured. And it enumerates the sacrifices that the healed person has to make, birds and sheep, fragrant wood and fabric. The nature of the transaction is clearly specified. The instructions ensure the contagious illness is kept outside the community and that those suffering from it, presumably because of their own sin, are shunned. And when someone recovers, it actually has the feeling of a business transaction. You get healed and you pay for it with a ritual sacrifice. For the nine who made that transaction and then didn't return, it makes me wonder if that's why they didn't offer thanks. When I stay over at a friend's house, I often send a thank you note for their generous hospitality. Oh, well, perhaps I don't do that as often as my mum would have wanted me to. But I don't send a thank you note to a hotel after an overnight stay. I've paid for it. The transaction is complete. No thank you is necessary. And so the nine who had completed the ritual transaction may similarly have felt no need to give thanks. But for the one who comes back, it was a different story. He recognized the grace he had received, and he was compelled to gratitude and worship. He wasn't steeped in the transactual rituals of his Jewish neighbors. To him, it was all gift. He'd been cured of his leprosy, and he could go back to his home community. But he seemed to recognize that Jesus was launching a new and better kind of community, and he wanted to be part of that. He wasn't an expert expert in doing all of the religious things. But instead of that being a barrier, it seemed to give him an unblinkered view. He could see the much bigger things that Jesus was doing. Brian Zond makes that point when he writes about the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Zond doesn't interpret the poverty here as a monetary state, but rather the poor in spirit, for him, are those who aren't very good at being spiritual. And he says that if you aren't very good at being spiritual, this kingdom is for you. Jesus declared that the Samaritan had found salvation, not by scrupulously following the instructions in Leviticus, but by believing that Jesus was the source of a life worth living. It was a big salvation, broad enough to embrace an outcast foreigner who didn't know the religious rules, and big enough to heal him, body, soul, and spirit. When I was talking about Alice's beautiful little walled garden at the beginning, I said that it can be appealing to us not just as a place to retreat, 
but as a structure for faith. I know that because I lived there for decades. It was a safe and predictable little space where the people were like me and thought like me. It offered a reliable, transactional sort of engagement with God, one where I lived a holy life, or at least pretended to on the outside, so that in exchange, God would bless me with the stuff I wanted. It gave me a sense of security and control. But more recently, a fresh wind has blown through my life and invited me out to a larger space, a space that's unpredictable. Who knows, Jesus may expect me to draw draw close, not to someone with a hideous skin disease, but to someone with offensive political ideas. He may call me to share the stuff that I used to think of as mine with people who have less. He may call me to address the systemic sin of racism and to care for the planet. It's all so unbounded and, if I'm honest, a bit scary. But I pray I will have the faith of that Samaritan man who threw himself at Jesus' feet and said, I'm in.